Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, where our job is to help you build visibility, professional credibility, and connection with your ideal client by putting the human at the center of innovative marketing so you can build and strengthen an engaging, enduring relationship with your ideal clients. I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm honored that you're here with me. If you haven't joined our wonderful marketing transformation community yet, go to innovabiz.co and collect your free gift as well. Do subscribe to the show and also leave a review because it helps others find us. Let's get into today's masterclass on this InnovaBuzz podcast. Technological change is getting even faster. We had 10 years of digital transformation in the last year. Companies that are going to win coming out of this are, are really looking at the changed world coming out of COVID and saying, we can be different. We understand it's a virtual world. We understand e-commerce is up. We understand travel is down. We understand electric cars are coming. What does that mean for us? How are we going to lead? You know, or are we just going to sit there and milk our asset and hope private equity takes us out? You know, that that can be a winning strategy, but not everybody's going to win that way. So I think it's about putting these new technologies to work, looking at the new business models, and really resolving uh, that you're going to be a winner. Because if you're not, you know, you'll have a nice historical marker in town that said, you know, here lies the Jones Company. They employed 100,000 people, but they couldn't change fast enough. Gee, it was nice when they were here. <laughs> I don't think you want a historical marker. You want to, you want to succeed and change, and it certainly is possible. Welcome back. I hope your week's been awesome so far. If you haven't yet listened to my recent conversations with the author of Exit Rich, Michelle Seiler Tucker, and the author of Intuitive Marketing, Steve Jenko, then do go check them out, but only after you've listened to today's conversation, of course. I'm really excited today to have on the Innova Buzz podcast as my guest, Terry Jones. He's a digital disruptor, an author, and a venture capitalist. He's founded five startups with $2 billion IPOs, Kayak and Travelocity. He's served on 17 corporate boards. His success has established him as a thought leader on innovation and disruption. As a speaker, author, venture capitalist and board member, Terry has been helping companies use the tools and techniques he has developed to keep succeeding in our fast-changing world. In our discussion today, Terry talked to me about why the most important things for innovation are taking risks, embracing failure and learning from that failure, then iterating quickly. We talked about what looking at other industries and their practices can teach us about our own and how to own the edge of your customers' journeys. Without further ado then, let's fly into the hive and get the buzz from Terry Jones. Hi, I'm your host Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz and I'm really excited today to welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast from Nevada in the USA, 
Terry Jones, who's the founder of Travelocity. He's the founding CEO of Kayak.com, and he's the author of On Innovation as well as Disruption Off. Welcome to the Innova Buzz podcast, Terry. It's a real privilege to have you as my guest. Jürgen, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to digging into the whole idea of innovation and disruption and how the two play out, particularly in today's environment. But before we get into some of that conversation, what is it that drives you and how does that shape what you do today, Terry? Well, you know, people have asked me, I've had a fairly successful career and how did that come about? And and I think I credit my parents, uh, my mom in particular, for making me curious. I'm just a curious guy. She made me a reader early on, took me to the library. We read all kinds of books. My dad was in the advertising business, so we got 40 magazines at home. I read all of them from Successful Farming to Popular Science. Um, and I'm still really curious. So that really drives me because I'm always, you know, thinking about what's around the corner and what's next. And my dad was kind of a maker. He was an amateur radio operator, and we built radios together and stereos and and go-karts and shacks and all kinds of things. And uh, so between being curious and liking to make things, uh, that's a good recipe to be an entrepreneur. Mm, yeah, it certainly is. And and the curiosity idea is um, is something that, I mean, did you pull things apart because you were curious as to how they worked? Or was yeah, more I couldn't put them back together either. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that, that I, I did a bunch of that and, you know, gosh, we had a, a giant train set in the basement, and then that space got turned into a big chemistry set, and then it became a print shop, and and then it became a photo lab. Uh, and my, my brother ended up becoming a National Geographic photographer. I never was that good. Um, but, you know, th that curiosity of putting things together and taking them apart uh, and putting things together maybe that hadn't been put together before, uh, and in those days, we built lots of model airplanes and plastic, put plastic parts together. Um, I enjoy assembling things and putting them together in new ways. Mm. Mm, sounds fascinating. I used to take things apart all the time to see how they work, but I could never put them back together. So I usually just <laughs> left them on my dad's desk <laughs> in bits. <laughs> all right. Well, um, let's talk then about how that all plays out in the space of disruption and um, innovation. Now, before we started recording, I was relating to you my experience at ACFA when I first started and regular listeners of this podcast will know all about that when um, I started and I thought that was wonderful as a hobby photographer and then digital photography came along. So that was my big experience of, of disruption and how established corporates reacted in a way that was really slow moving and ultimately led to their demise, as we know from ACFA and Kodak and um, to a lesser extent, Fuji, I think they reinvented themselves. So um, how do you see that digital disruption playing out and and that slow response example of in particular that one? And there's lots of others that you talk about in your books. There are um, many. Hmm. Certainly, and, and Kodak is a great one because you know they did invent the digital camera. They were first, yeah, right. but yeah. they never brought it to market. And the day they went bankrupt, Instagram raised a billion dollars. 
Hmm. So photography didn't go away. Kodak did. Uh, yeah. And and you know very difficult balance for them. Uh, it's it's exceptionally hard to change an ongoing company and and get your shareholders to understand those kind of changes. But you know we we've seen so much disruption, particularly during COVID. I'm I'm writing a new speech, and it, it's based on the song from Hamilton, the great new play. Um, Jefferson, uh, you know one of our leaders here in the U.S. came back from being ambassador to France after seven years. And the title of the song is, What Did I Miss? Mm. Well, if you look back at COVID, what did you miss? Did you miss yeah. that General Motors announced the end of the internal combustion engine by 2035? I mean, that's a massive change. And the same week, Shell Oil announced peak oil. They're never gonna pump as much as they pumped in 2019. And they're building 50,000 electric car chargers. And Tesla announced they're going to become an insurance company based on actual data, not actuarial data. So there are a lot of companies coming out of COVID who understand that you shouldn't let a crisis go to waste, but there are many more who are going to miss those signals. And I think the number one barrier in corporations to change is lack of risk. It kind of gets driven out. I've been the CEO of public companies and you have to make the quarter, um, but there is no progress without failure, and, and and there is no experimentation without risk. Elon Musk said in a recent uh, letter to shareholders, or no, pardon me, it was uh, Jeff Bezos. He said, you can't call it an experiment if you know the outcome. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. um, the problem is those those companies don't take risk and they don't experiment anymore. And they get really, really good at doing the same thing over and over again, and they optimize, and they they're profitable. But that's a sure uh, bet for disaster. You cannot do that. You have to take risk, and you have to learn how to kill projects instead of people. Um, mm. You know, if if it's Terry's fault, then Terry won't ever come up with a new idea again. Mm. It most probably wasn't Terry's fault. It was probably a bad idea that just didn't work, or the customer told you if you don't learn from the failure and move on. Now, obviously, if I fail over and over again, you know, you're going to send me down to the minor leagues. I'm not going to be, uh, I'm not going to be asked to do it again. But generally, it isn't the fault of the person as much as it is, is the idea wasn't correct. And the market told you how to correct it. And so I think that's the, the biggest learning that companies can have. Hmm. Yeah, the, the idea of risk and being risk averse as as a danger sign for not coming up with new innovation is is a big one i'm i'm curious the examples you gave there raise a question in my mind tesla going into insurance is an interesting kind of ad addition it's not it's not like if they develop this insurance thing and invest resources into that it's not disrupting their existing industry, whereas the examples of uh, General Motors stopping the internal combustion engine and going to electric vehicles or, or alternatives and Shell um, investing a lot of money in charging stations, that's kind of a disruptor for their existing business model. So how does a business balance those things where you know, their, their innovation and their idea, their experiment that they're doing 
is a disruptor for their existing business model, which needs to still be successful for the company to be sustainable. Well, that's right. And, and I, I think, you know, you get to the point where you you can't ignore the change that's staring you in the face. And that's what happened to GM. You know, they, they Tesla got big enough and regulation got big enough that they made that that move. And when they did, everybody else will. And I think the same things happened to Shell. There are oil companies who are saying, no, we're just going to keep pumping. We're not changing. There are other oil companies who are moving to renewables. Uh, there are others that are greenwashing and it's all baloney. So it's, it's interesting to see how far people go, uh, but it's very rare. You know, as somebody said, the, the best candle makers were always making better candles. They didn't invent the light bulb, right? It's, it's very hard to make that jump. And, but I think today with all the startups that are out there nipping at your heels, CEOs are much more cognizant of what kind of changes are coming. Uh, Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan said last week, you know, fintech is enormous competitive threat to banks. And I'm sure he's looking over at Ant Financial, you know, who spun out of Alibaba, reorganized and set around payments around their customers and said, what else can we sell this billion people that we've signed up? Well, they hmm. sell them insurance, they sell them financial instruments, they sell them security, they sell them all kinds of things because they realized that it was the billion people that was the biggest asset not the particular product that they had to sell. So more and more companies are becoming platforms around customers and saying it's the relationship that we want to leverage rather than simply optimizing our manufacturing process or our supply chain. That's a big shift. Yeah. Yeah. It's to me, what you've highlighted there is it's, it's about asking different questions, isn't it? Like I always thought um, in, in my example with ACFA, the, the question that should have been asked is, like they said, what business are we in? Was the question that was being asked. And they answered that with, well, we make film and paper for photographers. Yeah. And there wasn't the follow-up question with, with well, what, what are we really delivering to dig deeper because to me the answer to that one was a means to capture memories and then all of a sudden you're opening up a whole lot of other idea well how else can you capture memories and how could you do that smarter and make it easier for the person the user and make it uh, quicker for them which you know clearly digital photography was a means to do that very and hard then, to ask question yeah. and get an answer in a company and sometimes it's you, you know it can be simply also looking at an existing business and saying, you know, why are you doing that way? You know, Musk keeps it, you know, it's that old uh, ask why five times to yeah. get to the core question. I mean, look at SpaceX. They looked at rockets and said, well, you know, we can cut the cost exponentially if we reuse the rocket instead of throwing it away. Everybody said that was impossible. It took them 10 years. Now their cost of launching is a fraction of what other people have done, and, and nobody else, I guess, I guess Bezos is the only other one who has a reusable rocket. So sometimes just looking at you know the way things have been done and saying yeah, th that was true you know 50 years ago, mm. but 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 why? And and there's so many pieces of a business that people continue to say, well, why? I mean, look at look at 
I, when I was at American Airlines as CIO, I had video conferencing to my various data centers. Uh, and, and of course, the airline hated that idea, but, you know, they understood why I did it. But we always wondered, you know, when is it going to come and eat our lunch? Well, it just did. Yeah. yeah. Everybody's, and you and I are on Zoom here, even though we're audio. Um, I, I can't remember what last time I got a phone call. Everybody Zooms me. And travel's going to be, business travel's going to be down 35%. I, I met a guy who runs a massive former division of GE, a consulting company, uh, and they're cutting their travel budget from 100 million to 50 million. Hmm. And we figured out how to do it. We're not going back. CFOs aren't going to let it go back. So yeah. sometimes, you know, the external pressure, it, it comes and, and suddenly the technology catches up and there's a trigger. You know, whether it was 9-11 in the United States that changed security forever or COVID that has forced everybody to work from home worldwide or or punched telehealth up here. You know, telehealth was basically prohibited. It was 40% of visits last year. Hmm. Um, and we're all already hearing people say, oh, it was terrible and didn't work. Consumers loved it. <laughs> so um, it's, it's going to stay. That's the thing. I mean, Zoom, Zoom's been around for quite a long time and there's other technologies where you can have, um, have online meetings with people rather than travel in person. And, and it's something I've been using for a long time because like you, I uh, had an international career and, and we were using video conferencing technology to sort of save on travel costs way back when. The thing that COVID has done is it's forced people to use it that perhaps in the past have said, no, it's not really a substitute for in-person meetings. And now all of a sudden they say, oh, it's actually pretty good. We can cut back the in-person meetings. I mean, we'll have one in-person meeting instead of 10 a month and uh, the rest can be on it, Zoom. It's so hard to change opinion. I gave my first in-person speech in a year. Uh, I, I built a TV studio here in my office and did 47 virtual speeches last year and got really good at it. But I was down with a, a few hundred meeting planners and we were talking about virtual meetings or hybrid meetings. So some in person, some virtual. And they said, oh, that's too hard. And our job is to put people together in a meeting in a beautiful place. And I said, look, as a corporate CEO, I wouldn't say that's your job at all. Your job is to get me the right outcome from my meeting." to motivate my people, to excite my customers, to you know, introduce a new product. Now, if that happens to be in a great place, that's fine. But if I can cut the meeting cost in half by having half the world be virtual and get more people, which is what we saw with virtual meetings and conventions mm. last year, what's wrong with you people? You know, Sorry that it's hard. Do it. Get it done. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh... That's certainly, I mean, I think there's something there that you said that, that I was not surprised by, but I, uh, I thought, well, that's really opened people's eyes. And that's that um, some of those virtual meetings and conferences actually attracted, um, you know, double, triple, or even sometimes oh, yeah. 10 times the, the participants as before, because particularly international conferences where the cost to travel and the time cost to travel there from other parts of the world was a big barrier. So people might send one or two representatives from their company, whereas now it was online. So they said, well, everybody in the company can participate at a certain level. That's right. And, and amazingly, even the trade shows had higher levels of interaction. So the virtual booth 
actually worked in many cases better than a physical booth. People were a little less hesitant to walk up. As soon as they tripped the electronic barrier, I got their email um, and we started a conversation. Mm. Uh, and breakout meetings worked well too. I've been, as a speaker, you know, bouncing from breakout to breakout, which I could never do physically. So, but, but the, you know, we go back to the people who plan meetings, they think they're too hard. Hmm. Um, CEOs aren't going to put up with it, you know, and, and they're going to cut travel budgets than they already have. So, you know, I think coming out of this crisis, many companies have, have looked at some of these changes. My son-in-law's company shuttered their office already. They said, we're not reopening. We're going to have one little office for our CEO to meet with investors and that's it. Yeah. It's like a, a movie set, you know, or something. <laughs> and, uh, and, and my, uh, my son and his wife, she got a new totally virtual job. They sold their two cars and now I have one, hmm. you know, so that's going to be an impact. So, uh, we're seeing people make a lot of fairly dramatic changes coming out of this. And, and that's what, crises do. The hard part of, of teaching innovation and disruption is generally getting people to believe there is a burning platform. Yeah. Uh, there is a problem. This year, we don't have that. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. But, but one of the things I see, though, um, you know, you've raised a couple of scenarios there that I think, you know, there's lots of follow-on impact from those. So, for example, the, uh, the CEO who says, well, most people uh, over the last year have been working from home and it's been quite successful. So why do we need this big office space? Let's have just a small office where people can come in for the really important must-do in-person meetings and, and everybody else can work from home. So we save a huge amount of money on rent and overheads and um, supplies, power bills and so on. Then, so that impacts the real estate industry, the commercial real estate industry, it also impacts all the service industries around there because all the people, like I see the big cities, uh, people traveling into the big cities, into their offices, and then they go out and grab a coffee in their breaks. They go out for lunch. So all the cafes and restaurants around there or, or the little kind of supply shops where people might drop in to buy something on their way home, all of that's impacted. The Public transport's impacted the um, uh, the yeah the the example of the cars you know you the ability to drop down to one car as a two car family because really you don't need to travel that much. That's right, and so there are lots and lots of ripple effects, and and clearly you know in many businesses, will the pendulum will swing back? They'll find that they are not creative enough, that people aren't interacting at the level they want. So, you know, maybe uh, companies will swing back from that as IBM did, as Yahoo did over the last four or five years, they pulled everybody back inside because they wanted to change culture. And it's very difficult to change culture when everybody's remote. Mm. But you look at, you know, certain functions like call centers, like computer engineers, they don't have to ever come together. Engineers like to be alone. <laughs> and, and that's that's the way they operate. And and, you know, in, in companies I'm talking to, they're saying, look, I, you know, half the engineers in Silicon Valley are now spread around the United States. And if you don't give them what they want, they'll just, you know, they'll go to LinkedIn and get a new job and change their Zoom address in the afternoon and they're done. They don't have to move. Um, they, they, they move with a keystroke. Mm. 
So <laughs> I think for certain applications, they won't come back. Other others will, you know, certainly. But the but the impact. I mean, look at look at how many restaurants are not even restaurants anymore. They're ghost kitchens, you know, where they're just a kitchen in a in a strip mall with a bunch of motorcycles. And it sounds, you know, you read the thing online, it sounds like a fantastic French restaurant. Well, it's also making Indian food and, you know, hamburgers and they're shipping them out with delivery and they have very low costs. So, you know, society gets reshaped a lot. If you if you read about, you know, how tea reshaped London and how, you know, suddenly there were tea salons mm. and and how and coffee shops you know, were a huge change and people started drinking tea and coffee and they actually sobered up because they'd been drinking booze more yeah, than anything else yeah. because the only thing was safe. You couldn't drink water. So, you know, we'll see that, that change again. And I think for most businesses, it's about looking at these shifts and saying, either is it going to kill me on the one hand, or how do I become the disruptor myself in my industry and I'm the one who's going to lead it, you know, some new direction. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it, there's two sides, isn't there? There's the okay. There's an external impact, and in in the last year, that's been COVID mainly. And what, how's that impact on my business? And so there's a disruption there. And how do I react to that? But there's also the how can I be the disruptor? How can I lead a change? How can I move away? from the pack, which is, I think it's a different mindset, isn't it? It is a very different mindset and, and not every company can do that. Some companies are great followers. Some companies are optimized on production and, and other companies, you know, are pretty good at, at changing and, and blowing things up. And, and you look at, you know, now the, the largest companies on the stock exchange in the United States are all tech companies and they become platforms and they're highly innovative. But, you know, we're seeing, I mean, just think of the impact uh, that, that 3D printing is having on manufacturing. You know, think, think of the impact that mRNA is going to have in the biosciences field as, as this COVID vaccine was basically built like a piece of software in an incredibly short period of time. And people are saying, oh, I won't take this vaccine. It was built too quickly. They don't understand how it was built. It was not built like old vaccines. It, it, all vaccines took a long time because that was the way they had to be built. So you see these disruptive technologies, whether it's it's drones or big data or AI or 3D printing. And, you know, large companies have to look at how things change so quickly. You know, 90% of hearing aids are now 3D printed. And, and that happened, that change happened in like four and a half years. The people who didn't do it are gone. Yeah, because the cost base changed and the customization went up, and and you've got to adopt. So you know, I I encourage businesses to constantly be looking at what other industries are doing. You know, as I speak to industries, if I'm going to go speak about the oil industry, I'll talk about some other industry, because if I tell them about the cool things in the oil industry, they'll blow me off. <laughs> but if I tell them about the cool thing you know, in the manufacturing industry or in the bioscience industry, oh, that's pretty cool. I could do that here. You know, it, it's, it, it, it helps to point to people somewhere else and then they get to put the pieces together and it's their idea. Uh, they're more likely to run with the ball. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a great way to do it. Um, because as you say, if you come in as a non-oil industry expert to talk to them about the oil industry, whilst you might know a lot about that, they kind of say, well, we know that. It's it's connecting the dots, isn't it? It is, and that, that's a lot of innovation, is, is simply connecting the dots. I mean, look, the MRI really didn't have any new technology in it at all. They just assembled it in a new way. Hmm. And And Apple did not invent the cell phone or the MP3 player or the watch. They just made them a whole lot better. You know, they, they come at it from the customer experience working back, not really from the technology going forward. Um, you know, they're an experienced company and there are a lot of experienced disruptors. You know, you look at how Apple disrupted the music industry and then how Apple got disrupted by Spotify or, you know, how, how Dollar Shave Club disrupted Gillette. You know, who, who thought people would subscribe to Razors? Those are those are experienced disruptors. So there are a lot of ways to disrupt. You can disrupt on the customer experience. You can disrupt because your base technology changed the cost. Um, you can disrupt because you're simply faster than anyone else at doing things. There, there are a lot of ways to be good at it. The point is not to simply sit there and optimize what you're already doing because you'll be Africa, right? <laughs> or you'll be, you'll be Kodak. And and you you can't do that, and that that takes you know building a culture where you can make a mistake and you can fail, and failure is okay, uh, and and you move on from that failure and learn from it. Look, why do sports teams watch films of the previous match? Hmm. Not to assess blame, they do it to ensure victory. They do it so they won't make that mistake again. They want to make new mistakes, right? And that's what's so critical is to find the right culture and the right people, people who are glass half full and people who, you know, want to reach higher. Um, and if you can build teams of those people, then you move ahead. Yeah. Yeah. It's learning from mistakes as opposed to avoiding mistakes, isn't it? Yeah. Keeping your head down yeah. and uh, why, why should I take a chance? I might get a 5% raise, but if I screw up, I'll get fired for sure. <laughs> well, you know, I spent one time a whole day with a big insurance company and their senior people talking about innovation. They were all excited, ready to go. And the chairman came in and said, well, this is all good, but I only want you to innovate about this one thing. Mm. That was his thing. Yeah. Air just went out of the room. I mean, because, you know, what could Bob in accounting do? Nothing. Mm. You know, he was stuck. So um, you, you have to let, the culture flourish. Hmm. All right. Um, let's let's come back and talk some more about the impact of the pandemic and and some of the changes that companies have made that are going to have impact for them in the long run and and perhaps wider ranging impacts that we need to be aware of. Um, give us some examples there. Well, we we talked we talked about some of them, but you know, look at. Look at traditional companies who are taking risks. Mass Mutual is a 150-year-old insurance company here in the U.S. They just bought $100 million of Bitcoin. And that was shocking to me. You know, that, that says that something's really happening there. Um, you know, the delivery industry is now rapidly adopting drones in the United States because they've finally been legalized. And in, in one small city in Virginia, They've been experimenting with drones every day. 
Uh, 90% of customers there now like drone delivery, where nationally in the U.S. it's about half. You know, think it's a good idea. So what does that mean for UPS and FedEx when you know 80% of the products weigh, that are delivered weigh less than two pounds? So there's a dramatic shift um, that will continue. You know, e-commerce is up uh, worldwide something like 30 to 35%. It's not going to go back. Mm. Um, you know, we, we look and you, you tell me what happened in Australia, but in the U.S., Instacart, who's delivering food, hired 300,000 workers in two months. They're hiring 100,000 more. Hmm. And people have gotten used to having great meals at home rather than going out. Now, everybody wants to go out and they will. But will they go out as often? Yeah. Uh, my assistant was coming back from a trip to Mexico and ordered groceries online for the first time. And they arrived at her house when she did, and it cost her $5. And she said, well, that was a lot easier than going shopping. Mm. So, you know, a, a lot of the companies, in, in particularly in B2B and in other industries that hadn't gotten around to e-commerce, they have to now. You know, they're being forced to consider that. And it's hard for them. Uh, but, but they're doing it, you know. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the yeah, the move of the insurance company into Bitcoin. I'm fascinated by that, and I'm sort of still not really understanding completely the whole implications of Bitcoin. And and a lot of people look at it and say, "Oh, it's a risky investment," and they think of it as that. Yeah, but they think of it as a just a, a another currency, a kind of a virtual currency. Is there more behind it? Like is the tech is it the technology that's important rather than Bitcoin itself? Well, there are two different things, really. So I think, look, insurance companies, at least in the United States, you know, are huge investment vehicles, mm. and they invest in a wide range of things, from even even a venture capital to very stable investments. So for I, I think for Mass Mutual, it's just said, hey, we think we can make money here. We're we're smart investors. We're going to invest at the right time. Um, because Bitcoin isn't a currency, it's it's gambling. Hmm. You know, I mean, it, it is not a sovereign-backed currency that has a stable price. It's bid up and down by everybody who bids on it. Yeah. Same thing with Ethereum. So, you know, is it different than bidding on corn futures? Not to me. I think it's it's just a way to gamble and and to, with very high risk, see if you can make a bunch of money. But it's not, it's not, yes, you can spend it, but, but, you know, you can kind of spend corn futures too. You buy and sell them. Mm. Um, I think that the blockchain is a very interesting technology. It's exceedingly hard to implement because it's sort of like a religion. Everybody has to believe in exactly the same part of that religion um, in order to implement it because all the suppliers in a supply chain, you know, along that supply chain have to be there. So, Walmart is able to, they're so big, they're able to say around this part of supply chain, around fish, everybody has to be on blockchain. You can't sell to us. Well, that gets it done. Mm. Or Maersk, the shipping company who wanted to use it, realized they couldn't really pull that off. So they, they kind of spun that off to IBM and put together an industry consortium around blockchain. I had three conversations today with companies in the blockchain field, many of them around the issue of uh, vaccine certification. 
saying, you know, that's a very good place to put your vaccine certificate in a blockchain. It's safe and secure. It's immutable, can't be changed. And you can access something that says Terry gets a green check. So there are places where I think blockchain will make a lot of sense. It's just a tough technology to implement uh, because you have to get so many people to believe in the same God. <laughs> that's always hard. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, so the other the other one you talk quite a lot about is the Internet of Things, and I guess it's um, it's a little bit um, a tangent off blockchain. But uh, tell us a little bit about some of the exciting developments that that you've spoken about in the past and that you describe in the book there, because I think there's you know, well, you know, yeah, I think we are we're all interacting with IoT devices every day. Hmm. Um, I have I think thirty in my house. You probably do too, more than you think you do. Yeah. Um, and, and in industrially, you know, they're moving very, very fast, particularly with, uh, in conjunction with 5G. So one of the companies I work for, I'm on the board of is Boingo. We do a lot of Wi-Fi and cellular connectivity in the United States in military bases and housing developments and mil in stadiums. But now lots of corporations are coming to us and saying, we want private 5G networks in our factories to connect to our machines that are driven by the Internet of Things. Because 5G has low latency, so it can very quickly you know, move a valve or turn a process on and off, um, and it dramatically reduces costs. Or you know, we're putting sensors on our pipelines so we know what's happening, we're reducing the cost of inspection. Or we have sensors that are detecting wear and tear on our machines, so we're doing you know, maintenance before the fact, so that we don't have any failures. Uh, and part of the, the whole thinking about IoT that I talk about is a concept called owning the edge, um, because the customer is now at the edge. The edge is either the pane of glass that they're talking to on their phone, or it could be an IoT device. So Honeywell, for example, has sold sensors for many, many years, and the sensor would turn the red light on and you had to figure out, well, what did the red light mean? It means, means the compressor went down in section four. Then they went from sensing to meaning. So they actually put a screen on it and it says AC down in section four, so you didn't have to figure it out. Then they went to an outcome, which was action. Oh, we sensed that the AC is down in section four. We've turned on the backup and maintenance is coming. That's an outcome. That can be sold at much higher value than a sensor. Hmm. So people are combining IoT, particularly with AI and big data, to sell outcomes, to reduce costs, to increase customer satisfaction. I was on a call this week with the chief experience officer at Carnival Cruise Lines, one of the biggest cruise lines in the world. He was the guy who implemented the Disney band. So when you go to Disney parks today, you wear a wristband, which is IoT. It lets you in the park. It gets you to the head of the line. It pays for your dinner. Uh, it opens the door of your hotel room. Well, now they have a medallion that everybody on the cruise line wears, does all the same thing. You can even gamble with it. Uh, you can make bets using this medallion. And, of course, it goes on your credit card. helps if you had a little bit to drink uh, <laughs> and money. But they have 7,000 IoT devices on the average ship. So think about how much data they gather how they can optimize the customer experience, how they can optimize the ship itself and their costs 
by linking all these together, collecting the data, and then using AI to analyze it. So AI becomes sort of the secret sauce of 3D printing and IoT and many of these other new technologies because it can refine the data. And of course, AI systems are learning systems. So my company's learning 24 by 7 by 365, whereas your company has a bunch of analysts looking at the data that's a month old. You'll never catch up. Hmm. And that's a profound change uh, that's happening in companies who implement AI along with IoT. Yeah. Yeah, that cruise ship example is a, is a really interesting one because I've spoken to quite a number of people that have been on cruises and you know they rave about the experience they obviously they rave about you know the locations they went to the things that they saw but the other thing that i think is inherent in that is the whole experience of you know they get on the ship and they don't have to worry about anything so everything's taken care of through that medallion they if they want something they just show the medallion and they get whatever it is that they desire um so you know if you take that out of the cruise environment and say well you know can you implement that to just a normal everyday uh, life experience from, you know, things from shopping to travel to turning on the heating at home to, I don't know what else there is, but, you know, it does that give an opportunity? And I think there's, you know, there, there's a whole lot of things there that we could probably learn from that. Well, look at, look at Amazon Go, the, you know, they, they put a store out and they're building them around the U.S., where there are no clerks. There's no one in the store, just you and your phone. And they're using AI to watch you take the items off the shelf and you throw them in your basket and you walk out and scan your phone and you're done. That looked like a crazy idea before COVID. Now yeah. it's pretty smart. Right? Um, and, you know, we're getting contactless payment wherever we go. Um, think of companies like Shell has built uh, sensors into GM cars so that now Shell will pop up and say, you know, you're, you're running low on petrol. But there's a Shell station up here about a kilometer ahead. If you fill up now, we'll give you free coffee. Hmm. Well, that's owning the edge, right? Because the edge is where the customer is sitting at that moment. Um, there are furnace filters you can buy that automatically de detect when they're clogged up and dirty. They just order a new one. You know, so that's the speed and convenience aspect. Hmm. My printer here orders its own ink. You know, it's it's connected to Amazon. Am I going to reprogram it to connect to somebody else? No, it's just easy, and there's not that much difference in price. So speed and convenience win the day, and you have to think about, you know, owning the edge isn't about having a shop on a high street anymore, uh, because the edge is the edge of the glass or the IFE system in an airplane or your entertainment system in a car or the sensor at the edge of the factory that automatically calls maintenance. G G or GE is selling airplane engines by the hour now because they get so much reliability information from the engine. They said, well, do you want 95% of time? Do you want 98? Okay, we'll guarantee it. Just, just pay by the hour. Hmm. They're selling diesel railroad engines the same way. So... The other thing that's coming out of all these new technologies that I talk about in Disruption Off, because the, the first part of the book is about technology, and that's mainly to scare the heck out of you. <laughs> it's coming. Uh, but there's also a large section on new business models. So whether it's subscriptions or outcomes or platforms, 
people are combining these technologies with new business models uh, to also you know, turn the tables on the competition. Think of Tesla in the insurance business. They get so much data. They have 10 billion miles of learning from their cars. So they understand driver behavior in a way a traditional insurance company cannot. And they can also put the feedback loop in to say, well, if you insure with us, we've figured out how to fix our own car cheaper than anybody else can fix it because we built it, hmm. right? Um, that's an interesting feedback loop. That, that leads us into, you know, connected products. So the cloud, you know, is, is a wonderful revolutionary tool. It's why two guys and a dog have the computing power of a Fortune 500 company. But it also allows us to be connected to products. So in the web business, like Travelocity or Kayak, obviously we, we had these great opportunities for sensing what customers were doing. But traditional manufacturers haven't had that. But take John Deere, uh, the tractor company. They always had to wait for the annual convention to hear from the dealer what the dealers thought the farmer were doing this year, right? Now they're connected to the tractor 24-7. And they can sense what's going on, and they can update that tractor to delight the customer with a new feature to get them mm. to stick. That's why, you know, Teslas aren't the most reliable car in the world, but they have the highest customer satisfaction. Yeah. yeah. And it's probably because I go out in my garage and get in my Tesla, and I have a new car every six months. Because yeah. they've updated. It hasn't cost me anything. Otherwise, I got to, you know, cars never got updated. Mm. Maybe you could buy an accessory, move from an eight track to a cassette. You know, but um, now they're cool new features all the time because it's connected. And traditional companies have, again, have to think about what does 5G mean? What does it mean to be connected to my customer all the time? What am I going to learn? You better reorganize your data around the customer. Mm. Make people blow up those separate silos and focus on delighting the customer by learning from them because they're telling you stuff every day. Yeah, the, the, it's a fascinating principle and it kind of opens up the possibility. And I wonder what your thoughts are on this, because, you know, as a marketer that, that my philosophy is making marketing human again, and it's all very much focused around, you know, understanding your customer and customer needs and being able to deliver on those and delighting your customer all the time. Now with the Internet of Things and 5G and with that example you gave, it's a great one of, using the knowledge that you have and using the data that you're able to get to understand that customer better, understand their behavior, and then deliver things that, that will make their life easier um, and and basically be customers for life. So cement that relationship. Now, in the traditional um, world, that's that's, you know, there's been a mindset around that, that not all people have felt that way, that, you know, the customer... Uh, delivering that exceptional experience is the focus of what your business is all about. So how do you how do you bring that mindset in together with the new technology that opens up all those other possibilities? Well, it is a big change, particularly for mass marketers. You know, um, razor companies looked at the grocery chains as their customer, hmm. not the person shaving yeah. so much. Um, you know, they they certainly did surveys, but they didn't learn from individuals and they weren't thinking about customers. And then along comes, you know, a subscription company who gets information back every month and feedback from their customers is connected to them. Uh, it, it is a huge change. And, you know, I've been talking a lot with IT companies about this and CIOs 
Um, many times, you know, one of the ways this happens is the CIO will start collecting data from all the separate departments and putting it together in a data lake and start showing the company, here's the kind of learning we're getting. This is a good reason for all you to share the data instead of keeping it in your individual castle, marketing, sales, operations, customer service. Uh, because if we share it, you know, we can move way faster than the competition. Um, and sometimes that comes from IT. Sometimes it comes from the top, you know, from someone who says, a CEO who gets it and said, you know, I see what other companies are doing by putting all these data together. Um, we have to do the same and we have to be connected to the customer because, you know, it, specifically if they start listening to kids and millennials, you know, who live on these devices, mm. you know, for, for gray haired people like us, um, you know, we're, we're, we're not maybe listening as well as we can, but if you listen to kids, um, they'll tell you, right away. And you also, you know, it's important to take credit for personalization. I'll give you an example. Ritz Carlton, you know, says they personalize things, but they always do it behind the curtain. It's very quiet. And I came down to Ritz Carlton and I said, uh, look, I've got all foam pillows in my room and I don't like foam pillows. And they typed away the computer and they said, Yes, you do. It says so right here, you like foam pillows. <laughs> and I said, well, you're bloody wrong. You know, your database is wrong. And if you, when I checked in, said, Mr. Jones, we have those foam pillows you love. We've already put them in the room. I could have told you you were wrong. Mm. Or you were right, and I was delighted that you did it. Mm. But if I just show up there, I don't know if it's a mistake or every room has foam pillow. I don't know. Right? So you, you kind of have to take credit. You know, this is on the airline. This is, oh, here's your scotch, Mr. Jones, uh, like you had last time. Um, you know, it's hard to get it right. I mean, on Amazon, I order something for my grandkids and then I get baby books for the next, you know, 500 times. But but it's worth it if you take credit for it. And some companies, you know, do an exceptional job, but you have to you have to take credit for it. Hmm. Uh, and, and customers will tell you lots about themselves if they get something back. I build a database of 40 million names at Travelocity. Simply by telling people, look, you got to become a member if you want to use this. But if you're a member, hey, we'll send you emails every time the price goes down to your favorite destination. You'll get a newsletter. You'll get premier customer service. And I said, yeah, I'll give you my name and address. And suddenly I had 40 million people to talk to. Hmm. Yeah, well, that, the, the hotel example is a really great one. And, I mean, it's as simple as saying, even, even just checking, checking, right? Um, you don't have to sort of blow your own horn. They could have said, um, "We've we've put in the foam pillows that you you really like, Mister Jones. Is that all right?" Um, yeah, yeah, that's it. I would have been. Yeah, no, it's awful. Oh, that was wonderful of you. Yeah, thank you so much. You know, it, it's it's not only doing it, but it's letting people know you did it because sometimes it can be too subtle. You know, I just think it's a mistake. Yeah. Um, you know, we're used to it online with, with online preferences and advertising. And I mean, I had one yesterday where I, I'm looking at, I have to replace the air conditioning at, at my summer home and I'm reading articles about air conditioning. And then I got an email from Home Depot about new air conditioners. And that was a leap I hadn't seen before. Certainly I'd seen the retargeting ads that follow me around, but that, that article 
knew me, found me. I didn't put my name in, cooking me somehow, but sold that to Home Depot, who linked it with an email. Hmm. So actually, that was fine. You know, I don't object to that. And, you know, I'm one of those people who realizes there is no privacy. So get over yeah, it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, in that, you know, in that example, and, and I've had examples like that where um, I've been looking at something. I had one where I was actually looking at the latest Samsung phones a while back in store. I'd gone into the store. And when I got home, I had a bunch of emails highlighting the new app from different suppliers. And I thought, yeah, oh, that's, sure. that's interesting. But, you know, to me, that's that's kind of a, a convenience thing. If I'm seriously interested in something, whether it's phone or air conditioner, and I've been doing some research, and then people pop up to say, you know, we've got this one and it's on special right now, or they sell me the benefits of it, that that's okay. I'm okay with that. Yeah, it, it, exactly. So you don't want it to be too creepy. Mm. Um but you know, as we one of the other big revolutionary technologies coming, of course, is is voice recognition, and, and we see that with the you know whether we have an Echo or a Google Home in our house. But my last company was an AI company, and if you book on a travel site today, it's going to say where do you want to go and when. But really, you're thinking, you know, I want to go to an island and play golf, and my wife wants great spa, but you can't say that. So we built a, a, a product that actually allowed you to ask those questions. And we found the conversion went way up. Many more people were buying if they could ask those open-ended questions. And when the hotel showed up, we didn't show them a picture of the lobby. We showed them a picture of the golf course. Yeah. And a review of the five because that's what they asked for. Mm. You know, and, and so systems have to get better at listening and, and particularly voice allows us to do that. So, we're going to see tremendous innovation in user interface, both in industry and in consumers. As we talk more to our devices, they'll give us better answers. Hmm. Yeah, better answers and better customization, which, you know, yeah. that's, to me, like we talked a little bit about customer experience, but to me that, that customer experience begins right there when the first question is asked and, and coming back and then showing you pictures of the things that, you're actually interested in rather than like the hotel lobby or the beachfront, if you've talked about golf, um, is is part of that customization and already delivering an exceptional customer experience. Right. And, and so using AI to analyze the images, to read the reviews and to listen to the customers is going to be table stakes in e-commerce um, going forward. Uh, it's happening pretty quickly. Uh, and, and those systems just keep getting smarter and smarter. I've seen systems using AI uh, in chatbots where I may have a human running the chat, but the AI is listening in the back and will say, recommend this product to Jurgen, right? <laughs> yeah. And that blows the deal, right? Because the AI is looking at billions of interactions. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Well, this is fabulous, Terry. I could go on talking ages about what's coming down the pipe for the future and what are some of the implications, but I think it's a good point now to move on to the buzz, which is our innovation round. And I've got five questions that um, I'll ask. Uh, they're designed for our, our audience who are primarily leaders and innovators in their field. Um, and I'm looking for some tips from your experience. Hopefully the 
listener will go and do something awesome as a result of your answer. Hope so. Yeah. What do you think the number one thing is anyone needs to do to be more innovative? I we said it at the top of the show. Hmm. Take more risk, fail more often. Yeah. Right. Be comfortable with failure, fail, learn from it, do it again. It's the hardest thing to accept. Uh, when you're an operator and running a big business, it's probably the most important thing you can do. And you don't have to fail big anymore. You can fail small. Fail with a 3D printed prototype. Fail on the web. There are lots of ways to fail small, but fail. Hmm. Yeah, great advice. Now, um, in terms of learning from failure, do you have any tips there? You know, how do you take, um, like when, when you do fail, What's what are the steps you should be taking at that point to learn, take away the lessons, well, and implement there, them? There are a lot of you know quality tools about dissecting, you know, the reasons for the failure, and you know, was it execution? Was it the customer uh, didn't want the product? What what is it? You know, are you listening well? And really taking that feedback in and immediately changing your product prototype and trying again. And at some point, you know, you know it's not any good if it, if it really isn't. But and sometimes you're too early, but iterating quickly and learning and trying again is, is how you move forward rather than agonizing over the fact they didn't like it. Mm. You know, there, there's a wonderful guy called the Amazon Whisperer. He reads reviews about bad products on Amazon and he builds new products from those reviews. Yeah. Gets rid of all the things that fail and they sell like hotcakes. Mm. And apparently the people who build the products don't read reviews. <laughs> yeah, I, a few people have suggested, you know, reading reviews is, is a great way to get insights from other people's failures. So that's a really good reinforcement. Well, yeah. you know, I, have, I have companies all the time who say, oh, I don't want to have reviews. I might get a bad one. And my attitude is you sucked before. You just didn't know. About yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now, what's the best thing you've done to develop new ideas? Well, I, I think it is this, we talked about curiosity mm. and I, I think it's, it's, you know, putting things together in a different way. Usually, you know, a new billion dollar business is just changing one thing. The Travelocity was just do it yourself. Behind the HTML, we were a travel agent like anybody else. Kayak was a $2 billion business, was about choice. Let's let people book where they want, not force them to book with us. So it doesn't have to change everything you know, to be a huge idea, you just really have to, we looked at the fact that Travelocity, only 5% of arrivals were converting into sales, which in e-commerce is fairly normal. We said, where are they all going? Well, they're going direct to the airlines. Why don't we build a comparison site that lets them do that? Boom, $2 billion idea. Hmm. So look at, look at customer dissatisfaction and maybe it only needs a tweak. You, you don't have to invent space travel. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. And it's a great example. All right. Now, do you have a favorite resource you use most often? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I use several resources. One I use a lot is an app called Flipboard. Um, it's just, and there are lots of these. It's just one of those customizable apps that customizes articles. So I can flip through articles at exceptionally high speed and save the ones I want. Uh, and, it, you know, I say, look, I want to read about blockchain and, and drones and you know, whatever, whatever my interests are, because I can do that on my phone in the morning, you know, for 30 minutes or even get out of bed and all that stuff is collected for me. So I, I do that all the time because I, I find I don't have time to read them all. Hmm. 
until, well, now I do again because I'm flying. So I tend to <laughs> you know, curate them all and on a long flight, I'll absorb all that stuff and then distill it for a book or a speech. So there's so many tools that can help you read quickly today. Mm. Uh, it's necessary. Yeah. And my books are quick read, both on innovation and disruption off. There are 73 three-page chapters. So it's it's like a cookbook, which is necessary today because most business books aren't finished mm. aren't by the reader. Yes, that's right. I, I'm a very voracious reader, and often I find I've got about... 10 books that I've three quarter read and uh, I I kind of lose interest a little bit if they if they you know if I'm getting to the point where I think I've got everything I need out of this and um then I often move on to the next one Exactly hmm. All right now what's the best way to keep a project on track Well you know I think what what happens many times I mean there there are lots of answers to this, but here's one. Um, if you have a project that you know, the CEO thinks is important, probably you're getting blocked in the middle of the organization. So one thing I've seen that works very well is for CEOs to just get a red light, green light on all the projects. And if they see a red light, well, the middle manager knows that the boss is going to see the red light. Hmm. And they know that they're on the line to fix that problem. So they're much less likely to be in the way. Uh, the CEO probably doesn't even have to act because the middle manager will never want a red light. But if it's just, you know, if the, if the project gets buried and the CEO doesn't see it for six months and by that time it's off the rails, they'll probably say, okay, well, can that, you know, it's too late. Hmm. So if CEOs want things to move quickly, depending on their culture, Pretty good to just have a very simple report that comes up. Alan Mulally did that when he took over and changed Ford. Um, say, hey, I, I'm looking at this stuff. I'm looking at it every week. Nobody wanted a yellow light. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's kind of accountability, but very clear visibility that's very quick and um, almost self self motivating for those people. That, Correct. Yeah. Yeah, because middle managers have a lot to do and they don't like change. And, you know, they may, your new idea may be killing the idea that got them their job. You know? <laughs> and and uh, too bad. Hmm. You know, they got to get with the program. Hmm. Convince them to take risk. All right. Well, thanks for that. That's a wonderful idea. Now, um, the final question is, what's the number one thing anyone can do to differentiate themselves? Well. Again, I, I think it, it you know, a way many, many companies are differentiating themselves is through the customer experience today. Mm. That is a huge differentiator. Uh, you know, as you said in, before the, we got on air here, that when you were looking at digital photography, it really was worse than film photography. The quality wasn't that good. Mm. But people figured out that the convenience was more important than the quality. The same thing with MP3s aren't as good as LPs, yeah. but it's good enough. And I can have a thousand songs in my pocket. So I blew up the industry by changing the convenience of using it. So I think today, one of the huge differentiators is how easy is this to use? You know, there's a saying in Silicon Valley, if you're really willing, step one is install software. There is no step two. Mm. 
There are no instructions. I had somebody, we were trying to build an app. This was like eight years ago for a, a big convention. The guy said, well, I guess we can have an app, but how are we going to train everyone to use it? I said, if you have to train them how to use it, it's not an app. Hmm. It's worthless. <laughs> you know, we don't get trained how to use these. They work. Hmm. And, and you know, the single button interface, that is the differentiator today. I mean, look at Uber. It's just software. They don't own cars, licensed cars, service cars, right? Airbnb, it's just software. They don't own hotels. They don't service hotels. They just bring you hotels, right? They've eliminated 98% of the hotel business plan. Hmm. And they're worth more than all the other hotel companies combined. Yeah. Same thing with Tesla. You know, the car is about ease of use. When I get in my car, it shuts the door and turns on. My wife, the first time she drove it, I wasn't here. She couldn't figure out how to turn it off. She finally got out and slammed the door. And she said, oh, look, it went off. I said, that's all you have to do. Why do you have to turn it off? Just leave. You know? So I think it's really today, it is about user experience that is the differentiator in products. Hmm. Have connected product, listen to the customer, improve your product all the time, you'll win. Yeah, yeah, that's great advice. And uh, I, I often, uh, every time I have a really bad user experience, I just, it amazes me that the people in that company haven't gone through that experience themselves of using their right. own product and, and realizing that it really sucks. Eat your own dog food. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Okay, well, thanks, Terry. This has been fabulous. Now, where can people find out more about you, get a hold of copies of your books, and maybe even reach out and say thanks for what you've shared today? Well, the books are available on Amazon. They're in paperback, they're in Kindle format, and they're in audio. I read both of them, so just about any way you want them. Um, my website is tbjones.com. T is in Terry, B is in Brian Jones. It's hard to get a Jones URL, so that's <laughs> Um, uh, don't don't go to Monty Python. They own some of the Jones URL. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and and uh, you'll find uh, you know lots of information about me. Many many videos of my talks. You know I'm a public speaker. I've, I've been to Australia many times. I speak worldwide on disruption and innovation with real world examples and lessons you can take home. And I'm available virtually from my studio. Um, so happy to be a speaker. Uh, take a look at those videos. You'll learn a lot about the way I think, and hopefully you'll buy a book. And maybe I can come and speak for your organization. Uh, I'd love to do it in person, but virtual works. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Terry. And we'll share all, all those links in the show notes so people can click straight through. So do you have some parting advice for our listeners today as we wrap this up? Well, I think, look, technological change is getting even faster. We had 10 years of digital transformation in the last year. Companies that are going to win coming out of this are, are really looking at the changed world coming out of COVID and saying, we can be different. We understand it's a virtual world. We understand e-commerce is up. We understand travel is down. We understand electric cars are coming. What does that mean for us? How are we going to lead? You know, Or are we just going to sit there and milk our asset and hope private equity takes us out? Hmm. You know, that, that can be a winning strategy, but not everybody's going to win that way. Yeah. So I think it's about putting these new technologies to work, looking at the new business models, and really resolving uh, that you're going to be a winner. Because if you're not, 
you know, you'll have a nice historical marker in town that said, you know, here lies the Jones Company. They employed 100,000 people, but they couldn't change fast enough. Gee, it was nice when they were here. Mm. <laughs> I don't think you want a historical marker. You want to, you want to succeed and change, and it certainly is possible. Mm. Yeah, that's great advice. And and yeah, you know, what fascinates me is it, it's always technology. Uh, ever since the industrial revolution started, technology has been evolving fast, and every time you look at it, it's evolving faster. I mean, it, it's almost exponential because the more technology we have, the the next generation of technology evolves even faster because you've got this technology that's enabling that evolution. That's right. And, uh, but we're learning fast too. Yeah. We just have to learn faster than our AIs. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Finally, well, Terry. Thanks for Appreciate it. Yeah. Finally, who else should I get on the podcast and why? Uh, well, I'd suggest my brother, uh, DeWitt Jones. He's a National Academy, excuse me, National Geographic photographer, uh, nominated for two Academy Awards for his movies. Mm. Um, author, he's written uh, probably a dozen books, uh, many of them photography books, of course, coffee table books, but a lot of more philosophical books about nature and creativity. And he's been a worldwide lecturer on creativity for the last 25 years, lives on the island of Molokai in Hawaii. Um, I'm going out there to see him in a couple of weeks. Uh, a fascinating guest, and given your background in film, I think you'd really enjoy it. All right, well, uh, we'll get an introduction to DeWitt from you, and uh, hopefully we can get him on the show as well. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, thanks, Terry. I really appreciate the time you spent with us today and talking to us about all things disruption and innovation, and particularly how we can position our businesses and and take advantage of the opportunities that all the advances in technology provide us and and you know react to the situation that we're in coming out of this covid pandemic which hopefully is starting to um be on the downhill back to some semblance of um not having to worry about covid let's say well thanks very much bye hope you enjoyed that insightful and informative conversation with Terry and took something away from his episode. There are so many key messages in that conversation from the various downstream impacts out of the COVID pandemic to the exceptionally increasing rate of change in technology. I'd love to know what you took away from Terry's episode. Leave a comment below the blog post, which you can find at innovabiz.co forward slash Terry Jones. That is T-E-R-R-Y-J-O-N-E-S. All lowercase, all one word, innovabiz.co forward slash Terry Jones. You'll also find contact information there for getting in touch with Terry, as well as links to his website, his books on innovation and disruption off, his videos, his social media pages and the other resources we spoke about in our conversation today. If you like this episode, then please don't keep it to yourself. Share it with at least two other people that it might help so that we can get this valuable information from these wonderful guests out to more people. Tag me in on that chair and I will reach out to you with a special surprise.
Terry suggested that we have a conversation with photographer, writer and film director and also his brother, DeWitt Jones, on a future Innova Buzz podcast episode. So DeWitt, keep an eye on your inbox for an invitation from us to the Innova Buzz podcast, courtesy of Terry Jones. Tune in again to the next episodes of the Innova Buzz podcast where we've got yet more fantastic guests lined up including Pinterest powerhouse Laura Reich and personal branding coach Marina Gurgis. Thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the show to be reminded of new episodes. It's free to subscribe. Leave a review if you like. Even if you don't like me, I'm okay with that. I'm asking you to leave a review because it helps other people find this show. Go to innovabiz.co to join our marketing transformation community and access a free gift my team and I made for you. It's the Marketing Master Mini Class. We want to give you everything you need to transform your marketing into a human-centered, relationship-focused growth engine. Until next time, I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz. Remember, be awesome and keep innovating.